difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with Genevieve Kosky and Keith Phipps. Tosh Robinson is at a rival camp across the lake this week, but she'll paddle back for the next episode. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're deconstructing the deconstructive comedies of David Wayne. Genevieve, what do we have for our Waniacs out there? Late last month, Netflix released Wayne's new movie, A Futile and Stupid Gesture, a biopic about the late Doug Kenny and the rise and fall of National Lampoon, the magazine and brand that launched the careers of an entire generation of comedy writers and performers. Wayne seems like the ideal person to bring Kenny's story to the screen, given his own experience working with a troupe of performers dating back to Stella and the MTV sketch comedy series The State. Wayne's talent for upending convention and allowing for moments of silliness or absurdity was on full display in his debut feature, Wet Hot American Summer, a cult favorite that spoofs the summer camp comedies of the 80s. It was also a who's who of funny people, including state alumni like Michael Ian Black, Joe Latrulio, Ken Marino, and Michael Showalter, as well as ringers like Paul Rudd, Molly Shannon, Amy Poehler, and Janine Garofalo. On today's episode, we'll break down Wet Hot American Summer, a movie that itself breaks down 80s standards like meatballs, but also goes to work on narrative cliches, like the coach getting his ragtag baseball team ready for the big game, or the cheesy montage that can turn a loser into a champion. Then later in the week, we'll bring in a futile and stupid gesture, and see how Wayne and another impressive ensemble take on the stubborn conventions of the biopic. But first, I'm going to request that Genevieve, in her capacity as producer, get you pumped up for the show by setting Craig Wedron and Theodore Shapiro's higher and higher as the bumper music. Then you'll be ready for a wet, hot American conversation after the break. Take a trip back to 1981 with the special people who made summer camp unforgettable. You guys aren't supposed to be out of your bunks. You're in trouble. The camp director. Four campers are stuck in the ropes course. I meant to tell you about that yesterday. Could you get to it now? The counselors. Wait for me, Abby Bernstein. Wait for me, my darling. Wait, wait, wait. Last one's I got my shirt. The kitchen staff. Finish up the taters. I'm going to go fondle my sweaters. Come on, what? You said you were going to go fondle your sweaters. No, I didn't. The water sports. Hey, Andy, can I take out the Barbie bus? Sure. The nature hikes. Out! Out! And of course, who can forget the sacks, the muggings, the cover-ups, the malaria, the psychotherapy. Hello. And the friendships that last a lifetime. We want you to be the guest of honor at our wedding next week. From USA Films and creators of TV's The State. A renegade piece of Skylab heading right for the camp. Oh my God. It could kill us all. Janine Garofalo, David Hyde Pierce, Paul Rudd, Christopher Maloney, and Molly Shannon. Andy, have you seen my swimming buddy? I was busy. It's your job to make sure kids don't drown. Um... 
Where are we going? To a big secret pizza party. Wet, hot American summer. The common denominator with many David Wayne comedies is that they're never embraced at the time they came out. Wet, hot American summer, wanderlust, they came together. All of them have picked up varying levels of cult appreciation on video, but critics and general audiences often struggle to appreciate them at first glance. When Wet Hot American Summer premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in 2001, the one and only year that I attended the festival, it picked up a distributor, but the buzz was mixed to negative, with only a few championing it as an eccentric, absurdist triumph. It's worth noting, also, that another future cult favorite, Donnie Darko, also turfed out at the same festival. When Wet Hot was released to art house theaters, poor notices sank the film before word of mouth could develop, and it only made $300,000 at the box office. Now, 17 years later, as we all inch closer to death, Wet Hot American Summer is rightly considered a comedy classic on par with Airplane or Animal House and Caddyshack, to name two movies featured in Wayne's new movie about National Lampoon. But part of embracing the film is coming to terms with Wayne's peculiar obsessions and self-reflexivity, which forces you to recalibrate your notions of how screen comedy works. For one, the movies Wayne and his co-writer, Michael Showalter, are referencing are an unusual starting point for a spoof because they themselves are comedies, like Meatballs or Porky's or the Michael J. Fox, Nancy McKeon movie Poison Ivy. On top of that, the film also evokes the specific memories of middle-class Jewish boys getting shipped off to summer camp in the 1980s, first as campers, then as counselors. Then on top of all that, it fetishizes other elements from the period, whether they're filmic, like the freeze frames and bubble letters of the opening credits, or the Rocky sequel montage set to higher and higher, or they're just random bric-a-brac, like the casual clothing, or the Pepsi light cans, or the Skylab satellite crashing down to the earth. But most of all, Wayne fosters a feeling of self-awareness on the part of the audience, which he assumes has seen it all and is eager to watch certain narrative cliches get exploded. You get the scene where the coach calls off the big game because the misfits on his team know how it's going to end and think it's a little played out. You get a show-stopping climactic performance of Day by Day from Godspell that's booed lustily by those in attendance. You get a cheery going-to-town montage that devolves into a crime spree, substance abuse, and half the counselors strung out on heroin. Set over the last day of camp in 1981, Wet Hot American Summer follows a number of subplots over a 24-hour period, but gives itself the latitude to go off on tangents and stuff the frame with gags and random bits of silliness. One of the joys of the film on multiple viewings is noticing the minor jokes you missed the first or second or third time around. This time, I find myself laughing hardest at a reference to the movie Clute when a group of male counselors are spying on a skinny-dipping session, or another moment where the campers are ordered to split up and one of them runs straight back into the woods, perhaps never to be seen again. To me, the film feels like the next evolutionary step from Airplane in the Zucker-Abrams-Zucker tradition, a spoof that also incorporates the episodic absurdity of really good sketch comedy. It doesn't behave like other comedies, and it's fascinating to watch Wayne and his troupe modify the form on their own unique terms. Today is the big culminating climactic softball game against evil Camp Tiger Claw. Oh! We have put together an unlikely team of misfits and we've been training like crazy all summer. Yeah, it's a motley crew that you'd think would never even be able to win a single game. We had a kooky training period where it seemed like, well, it seemed like nothing was going to go right. But guys, somehow we made it to the finals. So I say, when those anonymously evil campers from Tiger Claw get here, we give it our best shot and we try to come from behind at the last minute with some weird trick play that we made up and we win the game. What do you say, team? 
Sounds like pretty well-worn territory. The whole thing feels kind of trite. I say we forget it. Is that how everybody feels? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so what is your history with this movie? Um, can you say that you got it on first viewing, or, or has it played differently with you over time? I, I think you and I had the same history with this movie, which is that we saw it in the screening room, I think at probably at 10 o'clock in the morning <laughs> uh, in Chicago here, and you and I were the only people <laughs> laughing, if I remember yeah. this correctly. I mean, it was it was stone silence, and it kind of suggested... I don't. I'm always. I'm always hesitant to say this, but kind of a generational divide in some ways. I think there was more tuned into uh, sensibility of of people who are were not old then, but are old now, like mm-hmm. you and me. But like you know, people who grew up with these movies, people who kind of. I never watched the state the first time around, but I think you know, operating on a wavelength, I, I I understood. But like you know, I was laughing from the first freeze frame of like yeah. the, the costume design. <laughs> No, no, just the, yeah, the, all the, the opening, the opening credit sequence uh, uh, was on the floor already. And, and like, I think one of the early scenes where the film finds a whole another gear was is the going to town scene. I, I, you could just, I felt myself being amused. I could feel that kind of the oxygen draining out of the room, yeah. you know. And like, boy, did the reviews coming out of, well, I mean, Ebert's review uh, and others coming out of that actual screening uh, suggested that people were not quite ready for this movie in some ways. What about you, Genevieve? Well. I had like probably the ideal first viewing experience, which was at a screening of the film at the Music Box, hosted by our own Scott Tobias, who <laughs> had written about the film for his AV Club column, uh, New Cult Canon, which I had read. So I was going into my first viewing like fully prepared for <laughs> you know the the its history of being unappreciated. So I was like ready to fully embrace it, and uh, it was a packed house, a very appreciative house. Wayne was there. It was like the idea ideal scenario to see this movie and yeah i loved it i would say <laughs> okay. i got it see, because <laughs> i was ready for yeah. you to say and i thought it stunk it was, it was very strange no 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 no. i mean no i loved it the first time i saw it and i've seen it a couple times since then and so it was a different experience this time and i was you know watching it with a little more maybe critical eye than those first times where it was just kind of pure enjoyment but it also made me realize that the memories i have of this movie are some of them are very, very strong. It has a lot of like really incredible bits, but I have like no real recall for how it all fits together. Like I'm mm-hmm. always like kind of surprised by how it ends and like the, how the various threads wrap up and just how much is actually going on in the movie. And it it does really feel like a collection of sketches and that's not meant to be an insult Mm -hmm. um like that is part of the movie's dna and finding a an apparatus to bring all those sketches together is like what it does but it is also just kind of interesting to me that because of that it can feel like a new experience every time you go back to it yeah i mean i think it's been constructed to accommodate a lot of subplots that that kind of dangle around and, mm-hmm. and, and don't you know I, I think there are there are subplots that give it enough forward momentum to get where it needs to go i mean you're expecting the talent show at the end of the end of the thing you're expecting you know there's something develops with this uh satellite coming out of the sky, sky that's going to destroy them all unless they <laughs> unless they have a 20 sided die uh and create this machine you know and and i think ken marino and his uh I, I romantic really love the his romantic quest that, yeah. is uh and of course the kids go, <laughs> stuck permanently on the edge of the yeah yeah, yeah, uh, yeah love that. such a great visual gag <laughs> I mean, one thing i love about this movie is you get so many different types of humor like like absurd sight gags like that mm-hmm. parodies of movie cliches verbal humor there's just a lot there's a lot of flavors in this movie everything paul rudd does everything paul rudd does <laughs> 
it's, it's perfect. This the, is a per- perfect, perfect performance. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I'm not saying anything new with this, but Paul Rudd's like obstinate cleaning up after yes. himself yeah. is like just such a classic. And in my household, me and my boyfriend do it all the time. Um, it is honestly, it's the first thing I think of with this movie before the going to town montage, which I think is probably the other thing that you would hold up is the most like classic memorable mm-hmm. sequence out of, out of the the movie but god i could just i could just watch that one scene over and over and, and laugh every time <laughs> yeah and it's another one where the, the the subplot with him all these kids sort of dying under his watch yeah. <laughs> and then and then the kids who are who are D- dumping getting the witnesses exposed, getting dumped on the side of the road all, all of that is really good too because you know and I, I think you know you play off, it's again playing off a type mm-hmm. uh, not just in the movies but it, but in life of just like kind of the cool guy I mean he reminded me a little bit of Timothy Chalamet in uh, in Lady Bird. He's that type of type of a guy. But just like, so much doofier. That is to, true. You know, like like that face he makes. I can't even do it. But that like <laughs> I'm, I'm like making horrible noises into the microphone. But you know what I mean. Yeah, I think people I think people get that. Uh, no, yeah, they are different in that respect. But but in terms of just being this uh, handsome dude who's uh, no good for anybody <laughs> and is uh, that's that's good stuff. It tastes um, like burger. I don't like you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> another oft-quoted line <laughs> yes so many but i guess i didn't answer my own question about my history of the movie because keith keith, answered, yeah, keith answered, said you had the yeah. same experience answered it partially so what, what we, we, we did have, we did have the same experience and then and then yeah i mean i did introduce the film at music box and it's just it's fascinating to me and this is something i guess we can get into later once we bring in the new film and how it's coming out into the world just how films make their way through the culture and become cult favorites. I mean, be, how how it could just be DOA really at Sundance, but then certainly out in, in the real world and then come back. What is it? 10 years later? Was it 10 years later? Yeah, it would have been 2011. So it would have been 10 years anyways. Yeah. So it was a 10 year anniversary screening. And I mean, one thing I, I'll just, I never will forget from that screening is that, well, for one, they added a second screening because the first one sold out so quickly. And this is a 700 seat house. The other thing I remember is the big screening that was that you guys went to, which was sold out. Like David Wayne was like really moved. I mean, this was like the first time that the film had got the sort of validation that I think he must have wanted. You know, ten years before, and he you can got, just assume that, like, you know, you hear a film's getting a cult following, but to actually see the cult following, yeah, for human the first beings, time, kind yeah, of, kind getting of a sense of gratifying, like, seeing a sense that those people are actual actual people and they're out there this in, thing in large numbers, came and went so yeah. quickly. I remember, I remember buying the DVD and re- wanting to rewatch it because I enjoyed it uh, uh, so much. And I, I, th- I think it's interesting bringing Donnie Darko because I feel like they both picked up a following on, on, on home video in a way that they never had the first time around. Though Dar- Donnie Darko, Darko kind of started it, while it was still. Yeah, it did. Yeah. It, it did. It was, it did. Donnie Darko picked up theatrically at the end and then just hung around. Uh, right. So it kind of got, it barely hung on to, to become a cult favorite in its theatrical run. But I think uh, if someone had programmed this as a midnight movie, uh, it might have had a little bit more of a theatrical life the first time around. Yeah, just it, it, it did not. Uh, but I was curious to ask, you know, I mentioned in the in the keynote about this film and about Wanderlust and about they came together. None of the, all of which flopped. I mean, I, I, I left out role models. Which yeah, was yeah. role yeah. models was, was, a, was like, a what hit. about role models? role models? Was a hit, I guess. And it's and it's probably the most eager to please of his movies, but it's still a David Wayne movie. And I like I like that movie quite a bit. I do too. But it, it, I mean, I guess you would say it is conventional by his standards sure. uh, and, and more palatable, I guess. But but what is the phenomenon at, at play here? Why why is there such resistance? up front to these films and then why do they find an audience later i think it might be because 
there is not an obvious emotional core to a lot of them, or there's not an obvious like protagonist or conflict or like something that your memory can kind of hook onto. And they are so parodic that, that yeah. there's not. Uh, I find these characters endearing, but I don't really care what happens to. Any yeah, of them. they're not real people in in a way that other you know there would be in a, even in a uh, in a more conventional comedy. And I think also like kind of a danger with parody is that you are depending on audiences familiarity with what you're parodying Mm -hmm. and i mean i think the wet hot american summer succeeds beyond what it is parodying because like i'm not super familiar with camp comedies of of, of the 80s like i've never seen meatballs you know and like i'm sure that that adds another level to the comedy but there needs to be a like it needs to be operating on a comedic level beyond the reference point. Yeah. And I think maybe that is a comedic level that is maybe not super apparent on first viewing if you are expecting to view it as a parody first and foremost. Yeah, and I think, I mean, there aren't that many camp comedies. Of right. The 80s. There's just a few of them. I think Showwater and, and Wayne have said that they've drawn as much on their own experiences right. for this. And again, that's another very specific thing to be sending up if you weren't at these camps at that time. Yeah, the person who I know that loves this movie more than anything in the world is a Jewish man who went to camp throughout his childhood sure. and, and teens you know and it, this movie means so much to him i'm sure because of that yeah yeah i mean i think when you talk about the spoof generally and it's and and it got a terrible you know when those freeberg seltzer films came out around mm. the same what more like mid a few years later mid aughts yeah they're so they were terrible but what they played on was broad recognition of what was being the referenced. Most and, and obvious uh, jokes about the most obvious. Right. Topics. I mean, it's, 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 it's almost this really base form of flattery. Just like, yeah, you've seen this movie, Meet the Parents. You're going to love this joke that is pretty much exactly the joke from Meet the Parents, except we're uh, not as well staged. Uh, whereas What Out American Summer is a little bit more obscure what it's referencing. And if even if you look back at Airplane, you, know, you have the airport movies, of course, and some of the other disaster films, but getting some distance from those does not hurt those films one bit. Right. Uh, and the other thing about it, and they came together, of course, you know, I think there's that mode of just relentless deconstruction of taking these cliches that exist to satisfy you, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the rom-com formula is a rom-com formula because it's something that we're accustomed to, that we're comfortable with, and that we find emotionally satisfying as kind of a narrative through line. And if you're going to take each piece of that and hold it up to the light and kind of deconstruct and mock it and everything like that. That could be a tough hurdle, I guess, for somebody in the audience to kind of get over. But, you know, I don't know if they came together quite has the level of cult appreciation that this one does. But uh, I think there's a sensibility there where it just doesn't really connect those movies. They don't connect with the culture right away. They just kind of find their way afterwards, which is, which, is, which is unfortunate for him, I'm sure. Well, and I think maybe the audience is always going to be smaller for these, you know, a smaller enthusiastic yeah. audience versus something that would play to cross. I think they came together, barely came out in theaters, did it? I mean, yeah, yeah, I think there was, there was some sort of a, it was simultaneous uh, VOD release right. or something pretty close to it was not really as much of an event as it might have been, uh, given the talent involved. But then shortly after that is when the Wet Hot Netflix series started, which is like a really interesting uh, evolution of, yeah. of this movie. And like Wayne plus streaming is, a, and we'll probably talk about this a little bit with a futile and stupid gesture, but like it seems like streaming is on, on the surface would seem like a better option for Wayne, just in terms of like not having 
having the burden of having to draw on a big enough audience. Like it's there for the people who want, who care to find it and who are on its wavelength and who understand what he's doing rather than, you know, a theatrical distribution model that is dependent on drawing enough people into this thing that like maybe not that many people actually want, you know? And they're, and they're kind of easily broken down into shareable clips mm. and things mm. like that. I mean, and, and I know he's done a lot of um, smaller projects as well for the yeah. web and is a little more connected to that. But to circle back to the film under discussion, yeah. <laughs> uh, Wet Hot American Summer. Uh, how, Wait, is that what we're talking about? We, we are. So how, uh, maybe we've, t- have we touched on this enough about how to describe the Wayne style? I guess we kind of, um, I mean, I thought you covered it brilliantly in your keynote. Oh, thank you. Um, well, let's move on to the next question then. Um, so how does the structure of the film service this ensemble? And, uh, you know, are there any subplots that stand out as particularly good to you? I think, you know, breaking them off into smaller groups allows, like I said before, different types of humor to surface. And mm-hmm. also, I, I think it would be too crowded if everyone was interacting. And sometimes, at times it feels like... Molly Shannon's kind of in a different movie, and and some of the other subplots are off on, on their own, but they, it, it does come together fairly fairly well uh, at the end. The the Molly Shannon subplot actually reminds me of like what I think is like really interesting about the last day of Camp Conceit, which is the stuffing of so much stuff mm-hmm. that should take days or like the full season, like stuffing it all into one day, and like that's funny and it allows for a lot of comedy, like the going to town montage Mm -hmm. you know like we were gone for an hour or whatever and all that and all that happened but (laughs) on this watch what i realized about the molly shannon subplot is like in the context of this one day or like the time codes we get like those kids are there with her in their little counseling session for hours (laughs) they're there for like six hours (laughs) walking her through the series and like that makes it a little funnier to me when when you when you realize that that just like while all this other stuff is happening there's like this intense counseling session for gail happening arts and crafts is going on for uh for 10 hours I think that's the, probably the section of the film that's grown on me the most over the years. I thought it was probably the least, least successful the first time I watched this, but I, I really like it a lot now. And I love the final gag of, of her walking yeah. off with the kid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good stuff. The MVP for this movie is Show Walter uh, to me. Mm, I mean, Coop. I love his performance as Coop, his performance as Alan Schimper, <laughs> the, uh, that's, the, yeah. the, the agent Catskills cat comic yeah. who who, uh, <laughs> who MCs the talent show. But but just just the poor Coop, he's so open and vulnerable, and he has his heart broken, and he works so hard to get it back. And then that final speech from from Marguerite Moreau at the end about how you know, she's young and she's all about sex now, and maybe someday she'd be into a guy like him. By the way, that is a great performance too. Marguerite Moreau mm-hmm. plays it so straight. You know that sort of earnest. We need to talk. Face. Oh, it's so good. Like the, that. That with Paul Rudd is the third part of that love triangle. If that, if that's the right word, is uh, <laughs> it to me is the highlight of the film. Yeah, and just the femininity that he displays in certain the shirt trading. Yeah, I was gonna say the shirt trading. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the shirt trading, and also him saying something like "I want you inside" me yes. is yeah. a little unusual. <laughs> I also like how he loves how she's sometimes late for shul. Um, <laughs> yeah, that earnestness does give it some heart as well. I also like how the film allows for these huge narrative arcs to be contained within a such a small time frame. Uh, mm-hmm. Part of the joke between that, the relationship between the 
camp director, played by Jeanine Garofalo, and the astrophysicist, played by... Um, Associate professor of astrophysics. I know, which is his, <laughs> his deep, deep uh, shame, played by David Hyde Pierce, is that they really have a full relationship that ends with her being pregnant, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the, the next morning. So it takes you on, it already, it takes you on a journey. It already happened. <laughs> it already happened, right. It's a, it's a, yeah, and that's, that's another example of how Wayne exposes ways of storytelling compressing it all by speeding yeah. it up right yeah. by, by speeding it up by speeding up that element or, or by having uh, characters advance so quickly in such a s- small frame like that we're laughing at not just jokes but we're laughing at at an upending of our understanding about how movies are supposed to work uh, which is i think is a pretty sophisticated thing for a spoof to do. I mean, I guess that's also a Zucker Abram Zucker thing to a degree as well, but he's got a more absurdist sensibility than, than those guys did, I think. And there's also just, I think, a lack of mean spiritedness to it. Like, yeah. or there, there's an appreciation at the, at the root of it because, like, it, it is sort of about, like, underlining cliches by, you know, compressing them or presenting them in these contexts that we aren't used to seeing them in. But then once we're confronted with the cliche of, like, oh, and by the way, I'm pregnant, and that's the, the bow on our relationship, you know, like, it's not scornful of that cliche as it's mocking it. I don't. I don't think. Yeah, I think there's a fondness. I don't. I, yeah. You know, there's. This isn't a mean movie. He doesn't. He doesn't really make mean movies. And uh, there's a contrast to that. I think with with National Lampoon, which we'll get into the next part. But yeah, I think I, I think there is a lot of affection for for what they're sending up. And and you know the characters, like I said before, I, I don't. You know, you don't necessarily care what happened to them, but they are very endearing characters anyway. But, yeah, well, not necessarily being good or likable. Sure. people. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's like true though. Yeah, magic. I mean, a lot of the the counselors are are out there hurting each other's feelings yeah. le- le- or left and right. providing or... wedding gifts. Though <laughs> that's one of my favorite payoffs of the whole. Yeah, like, the, the, cra- two, the crate and barrel ottoman. Yeah, the two apparently homophobic <laughs> characters who just show up with the big. Yeah. Crate and barrel. Yeah. <laughs> ah, so nice. God, you forget. There's so many, so much going on that you forget something that because it really, I mean, how much, how much time is devoted to that subplot within a subplot? But uh, it's, it's wonderful. That it's there, and I also like how much the film embraces just the purely silly. Mm-hmm. It's like thing stuff that just is not really commenting on anything in any sophisticated way, but is just kind of goofy you know stuff like uh, Jeannie Garofalo joking that she Ruth that Buzzy she, oh <laughs> I was gonna say oh. I was gonna give you say say talk about the jumbo shrimp joke because she's uh, oh, yeah. allergic to oxymorons <laughs> oh, yeah. um but yeah it's there's plenty of those I, I, I love the the Ruth Buzzy runner like what am I Ruth Buzzy standing over here <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the running gag I've always enjoyed, but I, th- I think I enjoy a little more each time is the the DJ who is uh, who doesn't shower. Who, who doesn't, <laughs> oh yeah, but but the fact that he's adopted this whole persona as the beekeeper and <laughs> he sets up the whole whole I'm the beekeeper here and my drones have been working up a rock block. <laughs> it's just <laughs> it's so perfect. It's such a perfect send up of DJ cliches, little kids, you know, getting self important when you put a microphone in front of them. Ah, I love it. Yeah, I mean, I think you could look to certain aspects, and this is maybe true of them reflecting on their summer camp experience of certain aspects of the film being just true or close to true of kids kind of, you know, I mean, the the film opens with the boys running out of the girls' cabin and and, uh, the counselors kind of half noticing it and not really caring. And all that seems just kind of true, almost observational humor uh, about how. How uh, what the dynamic was like, particularly at that point in, in camp when everybody's about ready to go home, nobody can really be 
punished anymore. The, the counselors are are tired and they have their own dramas going on, and no one's even paying attention. I mean, you know, Paul Rudd's character allows a kid to to drown. <laughs> two, two kids, <laughs> two kids. Um, so the, all all of that makes sense, just as observational humor, quite apart from it being absurd. French crate. Andy! You're not so bad yourself, Mr. Man. Andy, help me! I can't swim! Cut it out, Bobby. You're fine. For Christ's sake, Andy, help me! I'm drowning! Andy, have you seen my swimming buddy? Um. If I can't find him, I'm telling Beth that you let him drown. I was busy. It's your job to make sure kids don't drown. Lindsay, I need like 20 minutes, all right? Got to talk to this kid. Yeah, and so, and where was the cast at this point? This is 2001. The state had a certain following. I mean, people, a lot of people watched it on comedy MTV. Comedy nerd cachet. It did have a co- comedy nerd cachet. For sure, but, but watched it on, on MTV, and it kind of washed out when they tried to bring it to CBS, if I recall correctly. But obviously, the people continued to work together in one form or another, and still do. Yeah, and but in terms of stars, I mean, I guess it would be Janine Garofalo and David Hyde Pierce would have been the, the leads of the film, right? and you'd know Molly Shannon from SNL and Paul Rudd, and Paul Rudd from Clueless, Clueless for sure. But I mean, Christopher, this is Christopher Maloney was not that well-known, and, I, and I, I don't know for sure, but I mean, if he was known at all, it was not for doing whacked-out <laughs> comedy roles, yeah. and soon he would not be, you know, and soon that would also look like an aberration in, in his filmography until, until fairly recently, but maybe it's part of what made it a tough sell? Come see the new David Hyde Pierce movie? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, maybe so. I, I, I think it's something else. Um, yeah, I, I do recall there being you know, again, this is my memory of, of saying it's a lot of anticipation for it because it was such a big ensemble comedy with, that had a an interesting hook to it, but it just it just did not seem to get uh, you know the sort of reception that I think they wanted for it. I don't think it really had to do with the, the cast not being well well known enough. Uh, there was just something else at play. It was just the type of movie. But that might also explain the appreciation it develops over time as the members of its cast did become more known, like Amy mm. Poehler. You know, there, there, there's a great example. Like it, Bradley you know, Cooper, yeah, Banks. yeah, yeah, exactly. So, like, there is an element of watching it now, or even a few years ago when uh, you did the new cult canon on it, of watching these little kind of baby versions of comedy stars. You know, so the lack of big comedy names kind of becomes an, an asset from the remove of time. I guess it's kind of the days to. Con- confused effect as well mm, to totally. mention an, another movie with uh, a lot of stars to be that were not stars at the time um that tanked and then found a cult following you know now you return to it and of course it's it's matthew mcconaughey's signature role and people now look at ben affleck in that movie <laughs> in a really interesting way and sometimes <laughs> sometimes it's kind of uh, it's fun now to watch these stars especially somebody like bradley cooper play a role that really isn't like what we know the types of roles that he would play later you know he's just he's kind of a goofy handsome preppy jerk in this and i don't know that doesn't necessarily wash with the serious actor we've seen yeah this is his his first film i believe actually he'd done a little television before this and then this and then you know alias wasn't too far in the future at this point so it was kind of beginning of of bradley cooper Oh, that's that is true. God, I, this is pre-Alias, wasn't it? Mm, or simultaneous with Alias. I think Alias came out in two thousand and one as well. Huh. 
Wow. Yeah. So it was a, it was a real like it it didn't make any careers and really, but it, it it is fun to kind of see these uh, actors at, at an early stage before they were that known and then playing the sorts of roles they would never really get a chance to play again in um, certain circumstances. But let me try for just even a second to play devil's advocate here. I mean, are there limitations to this style? Um, is it difficult to embrace a film that, that's nostalgic and that you feel a certain amount of affection for, but that is also insincere in, in a fundamental way too? Or maybe that's a mischaracterization. I mean, I think we kind of touched on some of the limitations of it is in terms of there not always being a super strong emotional core, although, you know, arguably you have a little bit of that here in Coop. But even that is sort of cut off at the knees at the end, you know, mm-hmm. with, the, with the way it's resolved. Um, I don't know if insincerity is how I would characterize it. We were talking about the, the sort of weird affectionate mocking aspect of this. And it, it comes from a deep knowledge, I think, of the comedy tropes that it's dealing with. But because of that deep knowledge, there is maybe a little bit of a comedic remove where you're, there's a sense that like a joke is being like held up for your inspection or approval or your understanding, you know, like that self-awareness, that self-reflexivity. I think it can kind of create a little bit of a remove that you are like observing this joke more than you are like being caught up in it yeah. or, or taken off guard by it. I think that's exactly right. I think there is that conflict between self-awareness and earnestness can you be those two things Mm -hmm. at at once you know does it does the film become you know heartless if it's constantly deconstructing itself and in in laying the device bare as they say like it's it's kind of like a catch-22 because that self-awareness stems from like affection for the material Mm -hmm. and knowledge of the material but it also causes that little wall between the material and the audience i think i can put myself in the shoes of some people via quotes uh from rotten tomatoes and i'd actually would like to quote full reviews but the internet being garbage most (laughs) of these links don't work anymore but here's charles taylor and salon saying a spoof that manages to be even stupider than the pictures it's spoofing no that is that is one false False. that is one opinion uh michael atkinson for the village voice it's a comedy without a map somewhat Mm. somewhat i mean fair i can see that getting that impression I think if we're playing devil's advocate, I think I can see maybe getting caught up on the structure or lack thereof of mm-hmm. this movie and sort of the freewheeling. Not the threads aren't necessarily left dangling, but they do just kind of like appear and disappear. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not a, a strong. Yeah. Yeah. But even like within that episodic nature, like it feels like a sketch show where like you'll come back to you'll do like a reprise of the sketch, you know, like that's that's kind of what the quote unquote narratives in this movie feel like it's like you're just returning to the sketch conceit again and again you know there's not necessarily driven by the plot as much no i mean that's kind of the limitation of the spoof generally is when it's this episodic and this you know sort of have a kind of a gag a minute their gag a second feel to it it becomes only as good as almost the sum of its gags and if you and if there are dry points if there are like dead spots in it you really feel it hard because there's really nothing else structurally that's sustaining the film or there's not enough thing structurally sustaining the film and moving it forward other than just the strength of the jokes if the jokes are not strong or you're not responding to them then it just feels like dead air or if you're stephen hunter of the washington post you <laughs> might say this is supposed to be funny it was so depressing i almost started to cry wow zero stars out of five wow 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah not, not, not well received. Uh, yeah, I thought, I thought the film Shooter, based on one of his books, was so depressing <laughs> I wanted to cry. But um, anyway. Uh, Boom. Yeah, sorry, sick Stephen Hunter burn. But yeah, I, mean, I, I don't know. I, I think this is something we, we've chatted about already, but there is a, a warmth that sneaks into this film i mean it, you know nostalgia plays obviously a huge role in it in memory you know this this is not just a riff on movies specific movies or just a riff on conventions or con- comedy conventions and, and and narrative conventions but or a, the camp experience specifically yeah, well yeah i mean it, but it is i mean it is about the camp experience it is it but is, you don't need to share that nostalgia to appreciate it no no but there but but you can it, the film does look back on it with a distinctive warmth i mean the film right. does have heart to it it's not it's not just a cold comedy machine and uh, i think a lot of that is owed to the look of it too which i love uh in the sound you know the music and the the costumes and it's just such an immersive experience which is what you want a period piece to be is to really get you into how people were dr- dressed and, and scott was this shot on film uh, yeah, of course it was shot on yeah. film <laughs> just like it shot. uh yeah that's why it's so warm and uh, lovely because it was shot on film if it if it were two thousand one and it were shot on video, it would be pretty obvious it was shot. Yeah, two thousand one digital video. Oh boy, very bad, very bad. So uh, I'm happy that this thing was shot. But now, virtually indistinguishable from film, in some ways even better. Mm, oh my god, this is terrible. <laughs> Just trying to wind. It's like it's very easy, very easy to get me to get me going. Um, but I wanted to, you know, because all of us watching this for the show, all of us had seen this film multiple times, right? Multiple times. Uh, but I did notice that. There are some jokes that make you laugh harder uh, at certain viewings or that you just didn't notice the first time or second time or third time around. Do you have any of those uh, to share with us or even just? I mean, this this is like very small and I can't say for certain I I didn't notice it before, but it did stand out to me this time is the superfluous shattering glass moments throughout like where someone will toss something aside and then just a second too late there will be a, shat- a glass shattering sound effect that got me uh every time and it happens like in the first scene and then probably like three or four more times after that i kind of already said the the drones working on a rock block i just i don't know that that line really stuck with me this time oh and uh a quote that had never really stuck out to me before, but I had to pause because I was laughing so hard this time was the, you might say each and every one of us is a crew member on Spaceship Earth. Oh, yeah, that w- when would you say that? Anytime. Dinner. <laughs> literally. Anytime. <laughs> yeah, that was one. I, I, I was kind of like tweeting a little bit while I was watching yeah. it. I, that whole passage was one that I captured because I love it, loved it so much. And, and just his, his little models. It's just a rock and another rock. Or what were they, they making black holes out of gum wrappers or something? Oh, <laughs> Oh, that's another like running gag is in terms of pure silliness is the chewing gum is a prelude to making out like just <laughs> handing each other a piece of gum and then immediately sticking your tongue in each other's mouth. See, that feels like an example of a very like kind of nostalgia driven, affectionate gag, you know, like that comes from a place of like, yeah, I, I recognize that. I recognize where that's coming from. The shorts are so short. <laughs> <laughs> that, that to me, they're it's, stylish it's a, again. It's a very specific reference too, but those sort of you know running shorts that, that are barely longer than underwear. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what about you, Scott? You already mentioned the clute. <laughs> yeah, I mentioned the clute and and in that and the bit you talked about. It was also, I think, the, the the sweetness of the camp director and the 
astrophysicists uh, intensely researching each each other's uh, <laughs> the camp director stacks at the library. Yeah, and then, and then <laughs> both the, both both running up to say, saying where they can find oh, yeah. asking where they can find all this information on uh, yeah. camp directing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if I if I'm gonna really just single out a favorite bit, it, it is the uh, the the Catskills ish comedian uh, oh, really? that whole that entire uh, bit about <laughs> having uh, two epidemics when he went to camp, a uh, head lice in the plague, the bubonic plague. The, the, I mean, the jokes are of course hilarious, but but the kids' responses to the yeah. jokes, oh they're man, on, they're it's, absolutely the fact that the they're floor. just eating up the, the the corniest possible topic. Oh, I love it. We could be quoting this film all night, but uh, we'll have a chance to talk about it again when we get into our next segment. But for now, uh, we'll get right into some feedback on recent episodes. Now it's time for feedback, when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. First, we'd like to start with a voicemail from listener Adam about Phantom Thread. We don't have time to listen to the whole thing. Uh, Keith called it the magnolia of voicemails. Uh, <laughs> but we wanted to respond to this rumination about the meaning of the title. Take it away, Adam. I'm also curious on your thoughts about the title. Beyond the more obvious uh, sort of hidden notes and threads within Reynolds' dresses, to me I thought of how the pursuit for honest, pure, and raw artistry is in itself self-destructive, how pulling on a thread can unravel the whole sweater, much like his pursuit of his art unravels him physically and emotionally. He knows what will happen to him. He can't help pull on that idea for a dress, like a moth to a flame. You know, he needs his life and his days to have a consistency and a routine, but he also creates situations for himself that will be distracting and unraveling, as we know from his revolving door of women. And this also mirrors that conceit of destruction as a form of creation and vice versa. Well, Adam, uh, there is a specific thing being referenced here. It refers to a Victorian-era phenomenon which East London seamstresses, uh, exhausted by a long day's work, continue to go through the motions at home, uh, sewing threads that do not exist. But you know, I have other I have other. Yeah, I, about I mean, it, I think that that there's a lot of meanings you can take from the title and apply it to the film. Like, I mean, I was thinking in terms of the uh, like the idea of a phantom, the kind of apparition of his mom and mm -hmm. there being sort of a thread, both narrative and maybe in Reynolds's mind, kind of connecting Alma to his mom, you know, and so like that's one way to think of a phantom yeah. thread. You know, it can refer to this explicit phenomenon that is sort of alluded to with all the close-ups of the seamstresses sewing and stuff and i like adam's interpretation as well as woodcock being someone who could you can very easily imagine unraveling you know but that's probably the simplest one i mean a phantom thread would be also the thing that ties two things together that you can't see mm -hmm. which is kind of something we're, we're working with through the whole film through various characters as well I also just like the observation that uh, Paul Thomas Anderson like put his monogram in the title PTA. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, he's, he's, he sort of sewed his initials into the title, if if you will. Yeah, yeah. Wow, you can put anything in, inside the inside a garment. It's a nice title. It's just so it's evocative and, and but in mysterious and uh, you know which is everything that the movie embodies it's a great title and, and uh, something to think about uh, much like a lot of things that go in, on in that movie so I mean, it's when we're, when we're talking about uh, a title that we're talking about on like say you know dr strange or something that's a movie about dr strange phantom thread let's talk yeah. about it yeah well, how did you get that name strange Your parents had it before and then he was it's, like it was shortened it, shortened to yeah. ellis island 
so we got some really good feedback in response to our episode on To Die For and I, Tanya. Uh, I, Tanya has proven to be somewhat controversial this award season, in part because of how different people feel about Tanya Harding. Keith, could you read us this excerpt from an email by reader Adam Wells? Sure. Adam writes, I will say up front I felt similar to Tasha about wanting to see a movie about Tanya Harding. There was no way I wanted to pay to see a redemption movie for her. As for the negative reaction, one piece that struck with me came from J.E. Vader in The Oregonian. He hated the movie, at least in part because of how close he was to the 1994 story with Harding and Nancy Kerrigan. There were plenty of elements he pointed out that the movie either didn't touch on or changed. Harding received money for training from the Figure Skating Association and George Steinbrenner, for example. And I think the article is worth reading if you want a more accurate real-world portrayal of what happened. For me, though, an article like that misses two significant points. The first is that movies will always change because it's impossible to fit everything into a two-hour narrative. The second point, and larger point, is I don't think enough attention is paid to the opening when the screen tells us the story is based on two wildly conflicting stories by Tanya Hardy and Jeff Gullulli. Other than the scenes of domestic violence and abuse, which are shot and acted with a bluntness that makes it feel like the film was taking that part seriously, nothing around that felt like any version of the truth because both Hardy and Gullulli had their own agenda. I recall five years ago, all the pieces of news shows talking about torture and controversial tactics showed in Zero Dark Thirty with an author or talking head who said they hadn't actually seen the movie. So I give Vader credit for at least doing his homework. But I think his larger point about the actual story misses what the movie presented on the screen. Am I wrong? Is Vader wrong? Is anyone wrong? Everyone's wrong. <laughs> yeah, we're all a little bit wrong. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think that's kind of the, the message of I, Tanya, actually. Everyone's wrong. <laughs> I mean, I can, I can see if this were something I, I covered closely, um, I'd be very sensitive to any changes and diversions from the actual facts. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, the movie does stay right up front. This isn't your, you know, establishes right away. You're getting a couple of different subjective accounts of, of what happened. And, you know, I think a more straightforward rendering would be a totally different movie and not necessarily a better one. I'm of different minds about it. I did read this piece in the Oregonian, uh, which did get some circulation because it really is a scorcher. He is he feels that Harding is, you know, responsible for taking out an opponent. I mean, it, he's real straightforward about that. Like this happened, she knew about it. This this was uh, something that was planned, and the film is way too forgiving of that. And I think you could say to an extent that even though the film is based on conflicting accounts that you know, ultimately it was a film that had Harding herself at the premiere and feeling vindicated by it. So Vindication she's kind of undermined with interviews since since the movie came out, I will say. Oh, I haven't caught her. I haven't been paying attention. Yeah, to that. can you give a little more detail on that? Oh, I think I I, th- I read something about like she fired her manager or something because their manager was trying to prevent her for like asking for money for interviews. And there was a, a piece I believe it was in the Times an interview with her that was just like she came off very Tanya Harding. You know, it was not redemption story. Well, that piece was great. You know? the t- Acker, right? That author. Yeah. Oh God, that was such a good piece. Yeah. So I mean, she's she she's not exactly being completely celebrated uh, without acknowledgement of her personality. <laughs> and, well, and, what about the film, though? I mean, where where, where does the yeah. film stand? I guess is the question. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think Adam says it. It gives itself the framing of these are true conflicting stories. You know, like this is just one interpretation of this story blended from many different interpretations of the story, you know, and it, I think it just all comes down to accepting what a movie is trying to do versus what you want 
want that movie to do. And mm-hmm. like this movie, it does not seem as interested in solving the case of what really happened than in just like providing a context for why it might have happened the way it did. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I understand the criticism. I don't agree with it, though. Yeah, it's, I, I guess I probably don't either on balance, mostly because I, I do like to give films based on real events a lot of latitude to do what they want to do and, and to present whatever point of view they want to present, as long as it's not too absurd <laughs> absurd in terms of its relationship to the truth. Um, I think like, this, this might come up in the second half of this episode. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Um, so, so maybe we'll save it uh, for then. But uh, that wraps up our feedback for this episode. We always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll bring in a futile and stupid gesture and see how David Wayne's irreverent approach to the biopic tracks with his irreverent approach to the summer camp comedy. Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then... We won't be eating jumbo shrimp because we're allergic to oxymorons. We'll see you next time. Hey!